Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In this podcast series, we're metaphorically lifting up the moss-covered stone that is UK trade policy and seeing what comes scuttling out from underneath. And in this episode, we're heading stateside as we take a closer look at the trade relationship between the UK and the United States. In one sense, it's a relationship that only came into existence when Britain finally left the EU Customs Union at the end of last year. But that belies the fact that the United States is the UK's biggest single trading partner. And London has duly inherited most of the trade policy issues which previously exercised Washington and Brussels, and for the most part still do. So how are the post-Brexit UK and the post-Trump US getting on trade-wise? The tone of the dialogue has certainly changed in recent times, and the announcement of a truce in the tariff wars over the subsidies paid to Airbus and Boeing, respectively, was a positive sign. But there are still plenty of irritants to be sorted out by the women in charge of the relationship, UK International Trade Secretary Liz Truss and the US Trade Representative Catherine Tai. Now, tragically, neither of those ladies was available for this current podcast, but never fear, because our cast of guests on Trade Bites today is frankly even better. I'm joined by Peter Holmes, Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. I'm also delighted to welcome Marianne Petzinger, Senior Research Fellow at Chatham House. And I'm joined too by Mark Bush, Carl Landegger Professor of International Business Diplomacy at the School of Foreign Service, Georgetown University in the US. So welcome to all of you and thank you for joining us today. Peter Holmes, it's six months, more or less, since the US got itself a new president. How has Biden's Joe Biden's arrival in the White House affected UK-US trade relations? I don't think I can add anything much to what sort of is self-evident, that Biden isn't Trump. And it means on the one hand, he's much more conciliatory as far as the world trade system is concerned. And secondly, he's just not that bothered with bilateral trade agreements as a method of exercising US economic and political power. So he has no interest in supporting Johnson. And I think we're sort of back to basics that the economic interest in a trade deal between the two countries is less than it ever was. And the Irish problem is taking a completely different dimension. It matters a lot more to Joe Biden to make sure that things go well with the between the EU and the UK. So I think the Irish dimension is probably the most significant change. Mark Bush, we've heard that doing trade deals in general is not viewed as a particularly high priority for the Biden administration. But I mean, how far down the priority list does doing a trade deal with the UK in particular now come? You're right that trade deals are not a priority for the Biden administration. The question is, how long can the U.S. possibly wait to get back into the game? Over the last number of years, we've seen Europe really carve out a nice niche for itself and sign a bunch of preferential trade agreements with anyone willing to dance. 
and the U.S. has certainly fallen further and further behind. In fact, right now, the U.S. is 30 trade deals behind the EU. The question is whether Biden will come online again and prioritize U.K., And it's doubtful that UK is going to be a priority, given that so much of the recent rhetoric has centered on more cordial relations with the EU. There was a time when dealing with the UK first and getting a deal with the UK prior to the UK working on its relationship with the EU was really exciting. But that's no longer possible. And it's not in the cards. And as a result, I would wager that the UK has once again fallen down a list that itself has fallen down the priority list of what Biden hopes to do anytime soon. Marianne Petzinger, of course, a lot of work was done on the free trade agreement between the UK and the US under Donald Trump. There were, I think, five rounds of negotiations were completed. Is that work now wasted or Is it sort of like a sort of half-eaten lasagna sitting in the freezer waiting to be brought out and defrosted when the time is right? I think it's certainly in the freezer, but the question is, when can it be defrosted? And my inclination is to say not anytime soon. As we've heard, trilateral day trials are not a priority for the Biden administration. The U.S. is very much focused on domestic issues. And also keep in mind that Trade Promotion Authority will expire on the 1st of July. And it's unlikely to be renewed before 2023. We have midterm elections coming up in 2022. And again, trade legislation will be just too sensitive to pass. So again, looking out in like perhaps two years' time, the question then becomes how much of the agreement that has been negotiated between May and October of last year, how much of that can be retained? And the other element is that some of the most controversial aspects really have not been negotiated yet, and they will still be very, very contentious. Just think of, um, again, chlorinated chicken or hormone-fed beef. However, again, the rationale to renew negotiations when the type is ripe is still quite strong, I think. The U.S. is the U.K.'s largest trading partner, if you look at it from a country-by-country perspective, and again, support for an FTA with the U.K. is strong in Congress as long as the issue of the Irish border does not flare up. Of course, we're contractually obliged to talk about chlorinated chicken every time we mention UK-US relations on trade bites. And of course, it is still an important issue. I wonder if there is more of a meeting of minds now on issues to do with sanitary and phytosanitary questions, or is that still as potentially problematic an issue as ever? Mark, what's your view? Chlorinated chicken is really a fiasco. And I have to say that your audience isn't going to like what I have to comment about in terms of where we are on chlorinated chicken. But let's put it this way. Europe has no science behind its regime on chlorinated chicken. And the UK, in its cut and paste job on what the EU does, has no science either. So there's a broader lesson in all of this, which is that the UK is going to have to figure out how to do its own risk assessments and do those quickly. Because this reliance on the court of public opinion to be a substitute for science will not pass muster, not just in a U.S.-U.K. deal, but at the WTO either. And these longstanding disputes like chlorinated chicken, like hormones, they're longstanding for a reason. It's not the science, it's the politics. And if politics rules the roost in terms of how the U.K. goes about doing sanitary and phytosanitary cases, it's going to be a bumpy ride. 
Now, I don't see any, I take your point entirely, I don't see any evidence that the UK is taking a particularly different line on these SPS questions than the EU did. I wonder whether Peter or Marianne see things in a different way. Peter. Yeah, I think it's been interesting to hear David Frost recently insist that the UK didn't have an ideological view on food safety standards and free trade agreements. But he then went on to enunciate what was an ideological view, namely that the UK should set its food safety standards in order to maximise its freedom of manoeuvre in free trade agreements with third countries. Whereas there's obviously increasing domestic political pressure to have some sort of alignment, even if it's only temporary, with the EU. And uh, we may be coming to the point where instead of the debate being would a deal with one party prevent unavoidably, regrettably, a deal with the other party, say the UK versus the EU and the US, are there factions in the UK government that are actually deliberately trying to use the prospect of a trade deal with Australia or the US in order to frustrate the possibility of closer alignment with the EU. Again, that's not, the science isn't in it at all, but the politics is pretty intense. If we did sign an agreement with either Australia or the US, which admitted products which were unacceptable to the EU, it would make the prospect of alignment with the EU much harder. And of course, would make that particular solution of alignment with the EU to the Northern Irish border problem that much harder for more or less the indefinite future for any other future government that might come in with a different point of view. Let's move on to a question where there has been some positive movement between the UK and the US recently, namely the um, As I mentioned at the beginning, the spat over subsidies to Boeing and Airbus, there is now a five-year truce with the tariffs on trade in unrelated products being suspended for that period. Marianne, I wonder what you think the prospects are now for a definitive resolution to that long-running dispute? Well, I think it's still subject to determination because it's a very complex issue. And I think, again, just taking a step back, What we have seen now is essentially a five-year ceasefire to give time to resolve the issue of subsidies. And also just to flag that the UK-US ceasefire matches the agreement that the EU and the US reached. And as with the EU-US arrangement in the UK-US agreement, they have agreed to set up a working group and there will be regular meetings for both sides involving the trade ministers. But really it is a operative framework. It's extremely high level. It's quite vague. And the key question, I think, is, you know, what happens if the US and the UK, or for the matter of the US and the EU, if there is continued disagreement over what subsidies are allowed, you know, how do both sides then deal with complaints? Is there a dispute settlement mechanism? We don't have the answers. And I think the devil is very much in the details. The hard work comes from here on out. It's hard to believe that this is what gets produced after 17 years of WTO litigation. And as Marianne says, it's merely a ceasefire. The hard work is still to come, but this was a bait and switch. And the idea that they were going to come up with a permanent solution after a short ceasefire was never really in the cards. And now we get a five-year extension of the inevitable. Look for this thing to go south real fast. 
There's no way that at a moment when industrial policy is back in vogue all over the world, that this will stand the test of time. You're going to have a lot of interventions up and down the supply chains of both contractors. And I would wager that this ceasefire will feel the brunt of the political pressure within a very short period. So we've got another potential source of tension brewing, which is the UK's digital services tax. And the UK is not the only country. There are several countries that are proposing to introduce something very similar. This is a way of taxing the turnover of tech giants who operate in a particular country but aren't based in that country. And inconveniently, most of them appear to be American. Now, there was discussion at the recent G7 meeting at the beginning of June about a possible way forward for defusing this argument. Marianne, what do you think the prospects are for progress in this area? I think that the G7 deal is a big and welcome step, but it's only one step along the long road to reform. And I think, again, keep in mind that those discussions still need to move on to G20 leaders, and then they still need to be agreed at the OECD among 139 countries and jurisdictions. So I think, again, it's one of those cases where worries about digital services taxes as a trade irritant in the US-UK relationship are, are far from over. And the two key issues as I see them is, first of all, around can a multilateral agreement be reached and ratified? And again, as I mentioned, technical details among the OECD and this larger group of countries still needs to be hammered out. And there's also a political dimension to that. And here in particular, the U.S. plays a critical role. I think it's going to be quite tough to get a deal through Congress. Republicans have already indicated that they're not thrilled with what they've seen thus far. And the second issue is very much sequencing. And when will countries that have digital services taxes in place repeal them? The U.S. is insisting that taxes have to be repealed in order for the tariff threat to be off the table. And they want that to happen immediately. But countries such as the UK only want to abolish the tax once a global agreement has been reached and ratified. So it's kind of a chicken and the egg. And for now, the compromises that the US has given the UK and other countries about six months to come to an agreement. But I think it's you know very unlikely that everything is done and dusted at the level of the OECD in the next six months. And I'm not quite sure that the US is willing to extend the suspension of those tariffs for much longer than that. So the Biden administration is taking a very different line on climate policy questions than did its predecessor. It's taking much more seriously the need for action to address what is often referred to as the climate emergency. But of course, as countries take these kinds of actions across the world, the need for a coordinated approach and for uh, potentially border adjustment measures becomes more and more acute. So I wonder what the view is from the UK side, from the US side, on questions like a border carbon adjustment measure and how close are we to reaching a kind of transatlantic agreement in this kind of area? I think the question of a BCA, the border carbon adjustment, is very much an open question. Um, Both the UK and the US are considering it. The EU has very much committed to introducing it and will be publishing the proposal in July. A draft has been leaked. 
But I think the key question really is, what will the design look like? What countries, what industries will be covered? How do you measure emissions? How do you determine equivalence between carbon pricing? And how do you make it consistent with WTO rules? So again, a lot of complexity there. And um, thus far, I think the U.S. has sent conflicting signals. On the one hand, President Biden has promised to implement a kind of levy on carbon-intensive imports. But keep in mind that the U.S. does not have a domestic price on carbon. And at the same time, the U.S. climate envoy, John Kerry, in March, kind of said that the EU levy should only be a measure of last resort. So again, it's not quite clear exactly what um, the U.S. position is. I think what is also not quite clear is where the U.K. stands on all of this. Again, quite an interest to be involved in discussions, but we've not seen any concrete proposals. I think just to sum it up, there is, I think, a shared ambition or an understanding that a carbon adjustment um, mechanism has some value in principle. And there is an agreement that there is enormous complexities involved, but it's not clear that this will necessarily be an area for transatlantic cooperation. It could also become a source of tension if it's not designed properly. The big question is whether these efforts to green the global trading system are good or bad. And like Marianne, I worry that it's going to be difficult to reconcile some of these initiatives with the WTO. My biggest fear is that what will happen is we will end up with a concern that is perfectly correlated with distance, such that we end up favoring domestic versus foreign under the guise of greening the economy. And the more that it looks like that's what we're on the verge of, the more the Biden administration and governments around the world, for that matter, will find that they're really up against it in trying to rationalize and explain what it is they thought they were doing. Don't get me wrong. There is no doubt that green technologies are very much in vogue right now. And like I said before, state intervention is back with a vengeance. But this would be opening up a brand new can of worms. And I really worry that what the effect will ultimately be is arming governments with a new toolkit with which to fight back against imports. And we are probably going to see this linger on for a long time because it's going to be difficult to get right. And while it's true that the U.S. doesn't price out carbon, the failed efforts in Europe to properly price carbon are no less revealing of the problems that lie ahead. I worked quite a bit on this about 10 years ago. And one of the things that strikes me is that then there was a pretty clear consensus that border carbon adjustments could have a desirable effect on the environment. They could be made compatible with WTO rules, but that there were so many complications. They could be abused. They could lead to protectionism. They, above all, could lead to conflict about how you actually applied them. And so when this was discussed a while back, there was a general consensus that they probably should be avoided if possible. Whether something was going to be legal or not would end up almost certainly in the lap of the appellate body of the WTO. That's going to be really tricky. 
And what's striking is that with this revival, it's not entirely clear whether this is simply a political change, attitudes about priorities have altered, or whether there is genuine evidence that there's more carbon leakage than was thought to be the case 10 years ago. It was thought that the impact on carbon leakage could be beneficial, but it would be very small. And a lot of people are still in doubt about this. So it's a tricky issue. Well, we've talked a little bit there about the role of the World Trade Organization, and the Biden administration has sounded a bit more positive than its predecessor did about the role and function of the WTO. But to what extent has the US really changed its views on WTO reform? And I wonder, as the nations of the world try to reach an agreement at the ministerial meeting, MC12, as we trade geeks like to call it, at the end of the year, could the UK actually play some kind of honest broker role in helping the US and the other countries to come to some agreement on disputed issues like the dispute settlement or the appellate body institutions? Mark, what's the view from Washington on that? No one really knows. The honest truth is that there was considerable optimism that, as Marianne put it earlier, Biden isn't Trump and that a lot would be reversed. That isn't playing out on any clear and discernible clock. So when it comes to WTO reform, the good news is that there is at least some recognition that there is a problem. The bad news is that there really hasn't been a rush to either offer a definition of the problem, some proposals for a solution, or to even talk about a timeline for unblocking the appellate body. This is going to be a long time in coming, and unfortunately, the entire global economy is going to suffer as a result. Biden has one reality that he has to face going into the midterm elections, which is that you had bipartisan opposition to the appellate body. There is a conversation that has to take place, which is about precedent. And unfortunately, that doesn't sell well to the electorate looking for big answers to the so-called China problem. So as a result, it's difficult to figure out when the time will be ripe for a conversation that will get us to go. And until we have some of those deep and very geeky type conversations, we're really not going to see the United States rushing to unblock the appellate body. Marianne, sounds like it's not looking good for the ministerial at the end of this year then, but judging by what Mark says. I think the agenda for the ministerial conference is huge. And I also you know, do want to stress that we have seen a substantial shift in the U.S. when it comes to the rhetoric and the style of how to engage with the WTO and the members. But perhaps the change has been much less pronounced on the actual substance and the underlying concerns. So I do think that you know, the unblocking of the appointment process for the new director general was an important step for the U.S. to take. But it was also very much a low-hanging fruit. There was no real downside for the U.S., only an upside. The key test in my mind, and I agree with Mark, will be, is the U.S. willing to take the appellate body out of the deep freeze? That, as Catherine Tice constantly saying, is under review. It's not going to happen anytime soon, certainly not before the ministerial conference. But I think also with the U.K. having the G7 presidency and having launched a trade track for the first time, there is a role for the UK to play 
at least in terms of, you know, having a meeting of the minds and providing an opportunity for frank discussions and exchanges. The UK has another ministerial meeting coming up in October, so in advance of the WTO ministerial conference, which will take place at the end of November, beginning of December. The key issues there will be trade and health. There will also be discussions, again, around fishery subsidies. There has to be movement on that front for the WTO to deliver and be relevant. And then, again, progress on e-commerce negotiations will be particularly important from the UK perspective as well. But I think the larger question here is to what extent these plurilateral agreements, so those minilaterals, not involving all WTO members, but essentially a subgroup of WTO members, how can they be integrated into the larger WTO kind of framework? So we've spoken a couple of times about the G7 meeting and the summit at the beginning of June really was overshadowed to some extent about these tensions with Northern Ireland. I'm just wondering, Peter, you mentioned earlier about how important this question is for Washington. Do you think that Biden looking over Boris Johnson's shoulder is really moving the discussion or having a material influence on the negotiations on implementing the Northern Ireland Protocol? To what extent, how deep does that influence go, do you think? I think one would need to know more about the ins and outs of the negotiations than I do. But I, one thing I would say is that the fact that, as everybody seems to agree, the US is not in a hurry over a trade agreement with the EU is itself a sort of pressure. Because we were previously thinking, well, what if the US was pressing the UK to sign an agreement which included SPS provisions? That was going to make it harder to sort out relations with the EU. But if it's the case that the Biden position is, well, we're going to we're not that interested. It'll take some time. That actually takes some pressure off the UK. And it could be that in this case, as I said earlier, the the UK is almost begging Biden to put pressure on it in the opposite direction. That's to say, to, to be obstructive. And Biden is saying, no, you do what you think best for the EU. So the UK is in a slightly awkward position as a result of the US saying just do what's needed to sort the Irish situation out. Okay, well, we've covered quite a lot of ground in this discussion today. As we move towards wrapping up our podcast, there's a question I'd like to ask each of you in turn. And that is the fact that the US, of course, now has to deal with the United Kingdom as a trade entity separate from the EU. So for every trip to Brussels. There's also got to be one to London, if you're a US sort of government official. Does the US relish having the UK as a separate trade entity, or does it resent having that distinction? And to what extent has Brexit served the UK's interests in terms of its own trade relationship with Washington? Complicated question, perhaps, but very unfairly, I will ask Mark first. Well, it really depends on whether the UK gravitates toward independence or it continues to mimic whatever the EU is doing. There's a lot of cut and paste jobs right now in terms of UK trade deals, and perhaps there was really no question but to do so, given that you've got so many to catch up on. But let's be honest, if what happens in terms of what you talk about in Brussels and London is identical, then there really is no extra cost except for the flight, and it's always nice to 
kind of go home to moms in a way. But the reality is that so far, there's very little indication that the UK is doing much with its newfound independence post-Brexit in terms of the content of trade deals. If that changes, then you've got some interesting possibilities. Then you've got the tyrannical situation of the problem of three. And as anyone who's ever raised children knows, never have a play date with three kids because it won't end well. And so that really, though, hinges on whether, in fact, those three kids are playing fully independently or whether two of them are doing exactly the same thing, in which case it's really only a slight marginal cost. But so far, you would be forgiven for thinking that there really isn't a post-Brexit reality in terms of the content of trade deals because the UK is sticking very close to what the EU is doing in almost every respect. Yeah, that's certainly been the case up until quite recently, although arguably the deal that the UK is putting together with Australia marks the first sign, perhaps, of a movement in a different direction. But Marianne, I wonder what your view is on this. I think what's been clear throughout the discussion is that the trade relationship between the US and the UK is much less about the bilateral trade relationship, but much more about the global challenges that both face and having a gender that really speaks to that. And again, I think here the UK has the potential to play a useful role as a broker, perhaps as a catalyst. And with the G7 and COP26 presidency, key summits coming up or just having come out of those, But again, an opportunity for the UK to not just convene, but put forth its own proposals. But for that really to happen, the UK has to have a trade strategy in place. And that's not yet the case. In terms of perhaps other issues where the US and the UK could collaborate further, it's also very much around the US worker-centered trade policy and the UK agenda of leveling up. Um, I think there could be perhaps on the bilateral level more exchange of best practices. And then also, I think, in terms of future supply chain cooperation, there is potential there for the US and UK to work more closely together. But again, very much also with the EU. So it's, I think, increasingly in the transatlantic space about the US-EU-UK trilateral relationship. Peter, final words from you. I basically agree with what the other two speakers have said, that for the time being, there hasn't been a great deal of use of its newfound independence by the UK. And it's not entirely clear that it has any kind of agenda for what to do with it. And as Marianne said, the big arguments are essentially the trilateral ones between the US, the EU and China. And there was a time when the UK had a very interesting role as a sort of bridge between the rest of the EU and China in the sort of Osborne Cameron days when the UK was welcoming Chinese investment. Now with the uh, UK confronting China, if that's the right word, over Hong Kong, the UK is not in a particularly good position to act as a broker even with China. So, and again, in the Trump era, when there was scope for some kind of global deregulation agenda, then there was um, a scope for the UK to be a kind of, not exactly a Trojan horse, not exactly a bridge, but something that might cause problems for the EU in terms of extending its global regulatory hegemony, if you like. The UK can't really serve that role. The Biden administration doesn't 
seem so keen to do that. So I'm a little bit sceptical about what the independent role the UK could play is and how useful that can be to the United States. So Britain looking for a role in the world six months on from leaving the customs union and single market and however many months it is since it formally left the European Union behind. Anyway, there we have to leave the debate for today. I'd like to say a huge thanks to all of my guests, to Peter Holmes, to Marianne Petzinger, and to Mark Bush. And of course, thank you to all of you for listening in. Please do join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.